I first heard about the Texas Killing Fields a few years back while researching murders that occurred in and around Houston, Texas. After reading what I read about them, I can't believe I hadn't heard of them sooner. The fields are along Houston's I-45 corridor between Houston and Galveston. These fields have seen so many atrocities over such a long time span that I had to cut this story up into three separate episodes. Now, if you haven't heard of the Texas Killing Fields, pay close attention when listening to these episodes. There are so many victims and likewise so many suspects, so many men who could be responsible for the murders of over 30 girls and young women. I'm going to try my best to break it all down for you. Hi, I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe, Murder in an Oil Town. Act One, the 1970s. This story kicks off in Galveston, Texas, Houston's beach town. Galveston Island has an interesting history. Many of you may know about the 1900 hurricane that wiped out the city, killing what was estimated to be 7,000 people. But in decades following, during the mid-20th century, this beach town became known as the Free State of Galveston. So what does that mean? Listen up. During the Roaring Twenties, Galveston, of all places, I'm from here, so I know a lot about Galveston. Back then, it was a hotspot resort community that had many what they call vice businesses. Gambling, drinking, even prostitution. They called this time period the open era because business owners in the community made very little effort in hiding these illegal activities. And instead, they embraced it as their thing, like similar to what Vegas does now. And honestly, it worked out great for them. The island was, at that time, one big party that attracted big names in the entertainment industry. People like Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Jane Mansfield, Duke Ellington, and Bob Hope all made their way out here. But, unfortunately, all parties must come to a winding end. When the 1950s rolled its way in with its righteous indignation in tow, gambling and prostitution, the quote-unquote sin businesses, became actively repressed in most parts of Texas. And in Galveston, as the vice businesses crashed, tourism declined, and the rest of Galveston's economy declined with it. After 1957, the free state of Galveston was effectively gone, and as a result, many businesses relocated off the island. So the party was over, you know, seemingly over at least, and it remained so for about a decade or so. And that wasn't until the late 60s and early 70s, Galveston tried to reclaim its tourist draw. But this time, instead of focusing on vice industries, they focused on the outdoors and their hottest commodities, which is the sunshine and the beach. They modeled themselves after the Sunshine State. Surfers, skateboarders, long-haired hippie people took over the seawall. Surfboard businesses opened up. Ski schools started to enroll. 
The girls of the island look a lot like California girls in their dress and demeanor, beaming brightly with peace, love, and more than anything else, optimism. But in 1971, things took a dark turn. A massive storm of evil rolled in and clouded over the bright sun with its sinister darkness. And from the long casting shadows, monsters stepped into light and began snatching up young, innocent girls, leaving in the wake of their carnage their lifeless bodies scattered among the fields. Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were two of those young girls. Maria, 15 years old, was new to Galveston and Ball High School. She quickly became friends with Debbie, another 15-year-old who was a local and born on the island. The girls were adorable, well-liked, and impressionable. Debbie even made a name for herself as a rising star in the skiing and surfing scene. The two girls had their whole lives ahead of them, until one fateful day, November 15, 1971. The two young girls disappeared from outside of a Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop in Galveston. They were last seen climbing into a white Ford van that they flagged down to hitchhike to Houston. Two days later, their bodies were found in Turner's Bayou outside of Texas City, Texas. They were both bound at the wrists and ankles, Maria with fishing wire and Debbie with men's shoelaces. They were nude from the waist down and were shot and killed with a 38 caliber weapon. Now check this out. This was just the beginning of everything, but it wasn't the start. So just months prior to their murders, two other girls had also gone missing. On August 4th, 1971, Renee Johnson, no relation to Maria Johnson, and Sharon Shaw, both of Webster, Texas, spent the day on Galveston Beach the two girls were also avid surfers and skiers and loved the outdoors. Sharon was just weeks away from turning 14 years old. The girls were last seen leaving the beach with a stranger. They never returned home. Their bodies weren't discovered until January 3, 1972. Two boys who were fishing discovered what they thought was a floating volleyball in the water. Instead, it turned out to be the skull of Sharon Shaw. Weeks later, investigators found the rest of her remains, along with the remains of another girl that was later identified as Renee Johnson. Even before the Webster girls, a young girl named Colette Wilson disappeared from neighboring Alvin, Texas. She went missing in June 17, 1971, after being dropped off by her band director at the corner of Highway 6 and County Road 95. Her body was found in late November at Attucks Reservoir in Northwest Houston with a single gunshot to the head. What's truly devastating is that Colette Wilson's father was also her dentist. So when all the remains were found, he was called upon by police to help identify his daughter from her jawbone and the work that he had done on her teeth. Gloria Gonzalez, 19, vanished from near her North Houston apartment off of Jacqueline Street on October 28, 1971. The young, beautiful woman's remains were found less than a month later on November 23rd. She died by strangulation with a two-foot cotton cord attached to a four-inch piece of wood. 
A primary reason that she's on the Texas Killing Fields list is that she was found just three days before Colette Wilson in the same exact reservoir. Their bodies were only 38 yards from one another. Another victim, Brenda Jones, 14, of Galveston, Texas, was last seen walking to visit an aunt who was in the hospital on July 1, 1971. She was seen at the hospital by staff members and on the bus ride back by the bus driver who dropped her off, but she never made it home. Her body was found the next day in Galveston Bay near Pelican Island. She had been sexually assaulted and died due to both blunt force trauma and manual strangulation. On November 7, 1971, a woman riding her horse along County Road 89 found a woman's body lying in a ditch on the west side of a wooden bridge. The victim, Linda Faye Sutherland, 21, was found still wearing her go-go boots, a short pink dress, and a green and white sweater. A nylon stocking was knotted around her neck. She had 72 bullet wounds in her back, shoulder, and legs. She appeared to have been dead for some time. Officers found considerable evidence at the scene, but the case was never solved. Then finally, there's Allison Craven, 12 years old, who disappeared from her mother's apartment near I-45 on November 9, 1971. Police initially found partial remains, two hands along with bones from an arm and some teeth in a nearby field. But then on February 25, 1972, the rest of her skeleton was found in a Pearland field, also near I-45 and five to 10 miles from where she was last seen. Cause of death was undetermined. So all total, that's nine women and girls who were abducted and viciously murdered in one year alone. Now, listen up, because sadly, the carnage was far from over. In 1973, 16-year-old Kimberly Ray Pitchford vanished after taking a driving class at Dobie High School. She was meant to call her parents to pick her up, but she never had the chance to make that call. Her body was found in a thicket at Angleton, 35 miles south, two days later. She had been sexually assaulted and died by ligature strangulation. In Dickinson, Texas, two girls disappeared September 6, 1974. Georgia Greer, 14, and Brooks Bracewell, 12, were last seen using a payphone at the U Totem convenience store off of FM 517 and I-45. Their remains were found in Alvin, Texas Marsh. Both died from blunt force trauma. Susan Bowers was last seen May 21, 1977, walking between the 4,000 block of Avenue S to the 3100 block of Avenue P in Galveston, Texas. Her skeletal remains were found two years later in Altaloma, Texas. Her cause of death was undetermined. Whether or not these murders are connected in some way remains a mystery. Police think that more than likely this is the work of multiple killers inhabiting the town at the same time. And upon reading about serial killers and murders, that's sadly what usually happens. After researching, I'm pretty positive that even in the case of the Texas Killing Fields 1970s era, that there were indeed multiple serial killers.
multiple men without conscience, men who were boys who grew up to become monsters, the real, living, breathing kind of monsters who aren't afraid to lure young girls to their untimely death, even in the light of day. Act 2. What makes a monster? I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering why killers do what they do. For those of us who can't bring it upon ourselves to kill, honestly, anything, I can barely even kill bugs. It's hard to comprehend. If you're an empath, the question is even more perplexing. What makes a human want to kill another human? So I did some reading about the subject. In Peter Vronsky's book, American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, he discusses the scripting of transgressive fantasies that there are discordant tones in culture, a forbidden conjunction of cultural themes, and they all come together to create the whole. So to me, that means a few things. First off, these killers, many born in the 40s and 50s who went on to reign terror in the late 60s and 70s and even throughout the 80s, the boomer generation, these were children of the lost generation, a generation of fathers initiated into life and adulthood by means of the Great Wars, World War I and II, and the Great Depression. I'm sure you've heard the words toxic masculinity. This is something that was steeped into the young men at the time, and sometimes by means of militant, even abusive parenting. Now that, along with repression and shame imposed by overly puritanic beliefs and judgments and fear of nonconformity, it's just one part of the problem when it comes to the deviant behavior of serial rapists and murderers, because shame is often at the crux of their deviance. Guilt ensues, and that guilt turns to rage, and that pent-up aggression after consuming the sanity of that predatory individual is then directed outwards onto others. And those unsuspecting individuals become the victims of that rage. Now you could take this a step further. Now that you take shame into the mix, mix that with viewing exploitative images mixed with violence. And from what I read, this can instill in young men sexually sadistic tendencies. In a journal of forensic sciences published in 86 called Detective Magazines, Pornography for the Sexual Sadist, they state that the erotic images of violence and bondage and domination may contribute to the development of sexual sadism and serve as a training manual and equipment catalogs for criminals. But of course, that's just another piece of the puzzle. I also read that brain damage is often another component of the serial killer makeup. According to scientists, if you damage part of your paralimbic system, you can acquire a psychopathic personality. A study published in the Journal of Violent and Aggressive Behavior looked at the neurodevelopmental and psychosocial risk factors in serial killers and mass murderers, and their findings indicate that a significant portion of serial killers may have developmental disorders and or head injury. And you see that with killers like John Wayne Gacy. He was known to have an injury in Richard Ramirez and various others. But here's the thing, whether it's psychology or physiology or both, it's quite possible that some people are just born savage animals. Perhaps it was woven into their DNA like Jeffrey Dahmer and upon birth it attached to the inner workings of their yet-to-be-developed, perhaps poorly developed mind. Perhaps it even lay dormant 
until hormones surge through their bodies, opening the gates to release some sort of atavistic, chaotic energy that lived inside of them, an energy that slaughtered the chance of feeling almost anything relatable. Serial killers have a low level of remorse and empathy, but also a low level of anxiety and fear and even feeling their own pain. And that's seemingly why serial killers kill over and over again. They are in a constant state of emotional hunger and they feed on the stimulation of their actions, whether it's fear, excitement, and even pain. Though we've become better at spotting the early signs of psychopathy, better than we have in, let's say, the 1970s when the Texas Killing Fields murders began, we are still far from truly understanding it. And maybe if someone, anyone saw the signs in these individuals before they became the monsters they did, there'd be less murders. For now, all we can do is educate ourselves on who these people are and what these people allegedly did. So without further ado, here's Act 3, Monsters of the Killing Fields. Once upon a time, people, parents in particular, told stories to warn their children about the presence of a lurking monster who was watching and waiting, biding his time until he could one day snatch them up and take them away forever. They called him the Boogeyman. The word was created originally as a term for the devil, and in the U.S. South, it was most often used to keep young children from playing outside past dark or wandering off in the forest. There are all kinds of folklore versions of the boogeyman, but they are most commonly depicted as masculine monsters that punish children for not following the rules of society. The most important rule to be learned from the Texas killing fields is don't go off with strangers because one of those strangers could very well be someone like Edward Harold Bell. On August 4, 1978, while a 26-year-old Marine named Larry Dickens was out back cutting his parents' grass, a red pickup truck pulled up and parked in front of their house. Ed Bell emerged, naked from the waist down, and began exposing himself to a group of children playing in the front yard. An irate Larry made his way out front and accosted the half-naked man and shoved him to the ground. He then retrieved the keys from the ignition of his truck while his mother, Dorothy, phoned the police. Larry's objective was to detain Bell until police arrived. But Ed Bell broke free from his grasp and went back to his truck where he pulled out a pistol and began firing at the man, hitting him twice. And while Larry was on his back in the driveway bleeding to death, Ed Bell retrieved a rifle from his truck, walked up to him, and fired one shot directly into his head, killing him instantly. Police finally showed, chased down, and finally caught Ed Bell and arrested him. Unfortunately, he was released a few days later on bond, and then he fled the country. No one ever saw or heard from him again, until authorities finally caught him on February 14, 1993, living in Panama. He was expedited back to the U.S. to face first-degree murder charges, and he was convicted and sentenced to 70 years in prison. And this is where our story begins. In 2005, a detective with Galveston County by the name of Fred Page picked up a cold case. 
That case was the murder of Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman that happened back in 1971. During the course of his investigation, he discovered a letter tucked away in case files, a confession letter written by none other than Edward Bell. He stated in the letter that he had been part of a brainwashing program as a child and that this program forced him into becoming a monster, one who flashed and raped girls, one who killed several girls between 1971 and 78, including the names of Killing Fields victims, Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson. Upon further digging, he discovered Edward Bell was the boogeyman that your parents warned you about. He was a known pedophile, and throughout his adult life, he was convicted seven times of crimes against girls, including felony exposure to a child. And he was arrested at least 12 times on charges of showing his genitals to children and molestation. He even confessed that for a 12 to 14-year period, he exposed himself to over 10,000 young girls. He would get busted for some of them and then cut deals in court to get psychiatric treatment in lieu of serving prison time. Safe to say, his treatment didn't work. Ed Bell also corresponded with writer Catherine Casey and reporter Lise Olson. In one of his letters to Olson, he wrote that what could be considered a poem titled The Eleven That Went to Heaven and included the poem with a list of towns, Galveston, Webster, Houston, Dickinson, and Alvin, with numbers next to each one. It was his victim's list. He continued to write her and even wrote her a letter including the names of Johnson and Ackerman and Colette Wilson. She shared this information with Fred Page, and the two teamed up to build a case that could convict him. They documented their investigation on the A&E series, The Eleven, which I totally recommend you go watch. It's very fascinating, very well done. I think it's like seven episodes, and like I said, I totally recommend it. But on the show, they go through each name, each girl, looking for clues that can tie Edward Bell to their murders. And this is a little bit of what they found. So with Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson, check this out. It was Ed Bell in his white van that picked the girls up on the last day that they were seen. And with Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson, Bell was part owner of a surf shop that the girls were known to frequent. And he also lived near the ski school that the girls also attended. With Brenda Jones, he was seeking treatment at the exact same hospital as Brenda's family member, the one that she was visiting the day that she disappeared. And it could have been likely that that's where he saw her, and he followed her back, and then we were never to see her again. With Kimberly Ray Pitchford, Ed Bell confessed in a letter to Olson that he was the one who actually killed her. And Susan Bowers, he lived close by where her remains were discovered. Now, going through all of it, Paige and Olson were unable to find any concrete evidence against Bell. But the information that they dug up is just quite compelling. I tucked this show away after I watched it, the show The Eleven on A&E fully convinced that he was the man who did these awful deeds because A, he confessed, and B, the circumstantial evidence was just too high, highly stacked against him. But Ed Bell did recant over and over again, and some believe that maybe he was just a crazy person trying to claim that he did these things. Sadly, not sadly, we'll never know for sure, 
In April 2019, Edward Harold Bell collapsed and died in the Wallace Pack unit in Navasota at the age of 82, taking all of his secrets with him to the grave. But just when I thought the mysteries had been solved, the killer indeed revealed, though not convicted, I discovered other theories and other suspects that very well could have been responsible for some of these murders. In the late 1990s, an FBI profiler concluded that three to four sets of serial killers may be responsible for the I-45 murders. And with that in mind, I read about another suspect I'd like to talk about. So his name is Charles Hitzfelder Jr. In a book written about him, The Sheriff's Son, Lessons Learned, the authors, former investigator Wayne Skarka and retired Sheriff Donald Butch Campsey, addresses their findings of the February 14, 1961 murder case of Claudette Carolyn Covey in Hondo, Texas. So this is a case that's outside of the Texas killing fields. And what they did is they found clues while examining this guy Charles's life and they basically tie not only him to the murders of this young girl back in 61, but many other murders, including those of the Texas killing fields. So this guy, Charles Jr., he was the son of a crooked sheriff. He was just a wretched creature. And according to his multiple ex-wives and stepchildren, the man was a monster who viciously beat them and violently raped them. And he had a severe drinking problem that turned him into a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He would drink to the point of blacking out and wake up the next day unaware of the damage he had done the night before. While he was in the Navy, he was arrested for raping a 12-year-old girl. He was also arrested for raping his 10-year-old stepdaughter. In 1979, while Wayne Skarka was working as a detective sergeant for Brazoria County, he received a radio call dispatching him to County Road 82 in Manvel, Texas. A human skull had been found by a neighbor's dog. While interviewing the neighbor, his 17-year-old daughter, Linda, interjected and brought up the name Charles Hitzfelder. That he had asked the young girl out on numerous occasions and he even stalked her. And one night, she actually agreed to join him and a young lady named Trisha around her same age for a night out of the town. And that night through conversation, he confessed to her that he often picked up female hitchhikers. And while they were out, she noticed his guns that he kept in his truck under his seat. When they dropped Linda off, she noticed that Charles and Trisha were in an argument. And a few weeks later, Charles came over to her house with scratch marks on his neck and arms and when she asked him about Trisha, he said not to worry about her and that they were over. And she didn't think anything of it at the time until that body was discovered on their land. And upon examining the skull found at the scene next to Linda's house, detectives noticed two small caliber bullet holes in the back of it. But unfortunately, police back then didn't have the sort of technology we do now, and they were unable to identify the remains. And the case remains unsolved to this day. But there are just so many stories like that. And there's even more to this story with Charles Hitzfelder, and especially while he made his way to the suspect list of the Texas Killing Field murders. 
Number one is he lived in the area where most of the girls had gone missing and or were dumped. He worked at Cango Trucking for several years. It's only two miles away from the dumping spot of Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman. He was said to have keys to many of the gates that led to oil slush fields where some of the bodies were found. He owned several weapons, including a 22 caliber pistol, a 22 caliber rifle, and a 38 caliber pistol, similar to the weapons used in some of the murders. The body found in the field in 1979 that was shot in the head very well could have been his missing companion, and he could have been responsible for killing her. He was dangerous and abusive and raped several young women and even confessed to someone he often picked up female hitchhikers. And most importantly, there's this. Charles Jr. is one that police felt was responsible for the disappearance of a girl named Sandra K. Rambler, who was 14 years old. She went missing from her home on October 26, 1983, in Santa Fe, Texas. The young girl was best friends with his stepdaughter. He was known to watch them play sports and often had his eye on the young girl. Her body was never found. So with those two in mind, Edward Harold Bell and Charles Hitzfelder Jr., that leads us to a couple more. And I mean, here's the thing. There are more even beyond this. This is just my short list of the ones that really stood out as possible suspects in, in these murders. But these are my final suspects, and these are some really awful men who were actually convicted of some of the crimes that they committed, and their names are Harry Lanham and Anthony Tony Nopa. So their typical MO involved picking up hitchhikers or women in bars or stranded motorists and they would transport them to a vacant house, and they would rape them several times, and after that, they were driven out to the countryside, and they shot them. On November 3, 1971, the body of 16-year-old Adele Crabtree was found outside Conroe, Texas. She was last seen at a quote-unquote hippie commune in Houston, and her body was found fully clothed, and her death was attributed to close-range gunshot blast. On the same day, Linda Sutherland, and she was on my victims list, was reported missing in Houston. Police retrieved her blood-stained car, but five more days would pass before her body was found in Brazoria County. So that's the woman with a pair of nylon pantyhose that was tied around her neck, and she was shot an obscene amount of times in her back. Investigators learned that Sutherland had stopped in the neighborhood bar after work on the night she disappeared, and witnesses recalled her talking to a man named Harry Lanham that same night. And so a little about Harry. Harry was a tow truck driver who had multiple convictions of rape and was arrested for beating up his girlfriend and her five-year-old daughter. He was picked up for questioning on December 8, 1971, but refused to cooperate with police. Eventually, though, the pressure of surveillance and police interrogation finally got to him, and on April 1972, he broke down and he confessed to the Sutherland murder and also to raping and killing another victim, Pamela Hubner, a housewife who was last seen in Houston, Texas on June 9, 1971 and was never heard from again. 
he also ratted out an acquaintance of his, 24-year-old Anthony Nopa, who worked with him in the Sutherland murder. Tony Nopa, who had been charged for rape once before, was outraged his partner was ratting him out. Harry was actually the trigger man in both the Sutherland and Crabtree slayings, and he said that Lanham said to him he should stick it out with him, and then he'd see a whole lot of women killed. In custody, Harry Lanham was also leaked with the murders of Colette Wilson and Gloria Gonzalez. Authorities believe that he could have been responsible for a total of nine deaths. He was never charged in Hubner's presumed murder. Twice, he led authorities to a place where he said he put her body, but both times, police search turned up nothing. More than likely, he was just trying to send them on wild goose chases. Ultimately, the pair of killers were only convicted to the Sutherland murder, and Lanham was sentenced to only 25 years in prison and Nopa to 50 years, which I don't understand why he got more time, but I guess there were some other cases that, you know, they tied to him. On December 30th, 1973, while Harry Lanham and Anthony Nopa were still awaiting trial, Lanham attempted to break out of jail holding a guard at knife point. The guard broke free and shot and killed him right on the spot. Subsequently, the pending charges against Nopa were dropped after Lanham's death because he had been the primary witness against him. Nopa was released from prison in 1989, having served 15 years of his 50-year sentence. Sadly, what we went over on this episode about the Texas killing fields is one part of a much larger picture. That was all just episode one. That was a list of victims and a list of suspects that could be responsible for those victims' murders. And all of that happened in the 1970s. On our next episode, we're going to talk about the murders that occurred in the 1980s, specifically about the remains found in one particular spot, the haunting and once desolate Calder Oil Field in League City, Texas. Four bodies were discovered there, just yards from one another. And as the list of victim grows longer, so does our list of suspects. So stay tuned. And thank you again for listening to this episode of Crude Axe, Murder in an Oil Town. I'm your host, writer and creator, Jen Schaefer. Executive producers Russell Dunlap and Amy Dunlap are keeping this thing together and keeping this boat a-rockin'. And all the original music is by Two Star Symphony. They are responsible for our intro song, and if you want to check them out, they are on the web at and you can also listen to them on places like Spotify. So, yeah, again, I'm Jen Schaefer. This is Crude Axe. Stay tuned for episode two of the Texas Killing Fields. All right. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>